Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 29th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding appellate issues of salience. We've got two terrific guests this week. One continues our summer series previewing the United States Supreme Court's October 2016 term. The other analyzes an important property rights ruling from California's High Court that issued last week. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a 10-attorney appellate boutique in San Francisco, visits first for the second installment of our SCOTUS preview. Today we'll regard a copyright dispute between cheerleader uniform designers. That case, Star Athletica vs. Varsity Brands, seeks an answer to the question of, for copyright purposes, where utility ends and creative artistic design begins. The answer to that question will affect not just cheerleading suppliers, but the entire garment industry and other industries as well. Our second guest is Rex Heinke, a partner with Aiken Gump and the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Division. He'll help dissect last week's California Supreme Court ruling in Property Reserve versus Superior Court, a significant property rights ruling that allows the state to move forward with a plan by Governor Brown to potentially create massive tunnels meant to convey water from the Sacramento River to suppliers throughout the state. To pursue the plan, the state, specifically the Department of Water Resources, had been needing to enter private lands and conduct tests meant to determine where the tunnels might most advantageously run. The state believed it had statutory authority for these temporary intrusions, but landowners felt otherwise and filed suit. The landowners largely prevailed in lower courts, but the state high court determined that such temporary entries on private land are within the government's purview, where, as here, there are significant judicial processes attending those entries, including guarantees that landowners will be compensated for any damage. Mr. Heike will discuss the court's balancing of private and governmental interests and consider what this ruling means for the project at issue and potential future undertakings the state may conceive. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Ben Foyer. We welcome in now Ben Foyer, the chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, which is a a 10-lawyer appellate boutique firm in San Francisco. He has devoted his entire career to appellate law. He serves as the lead appellate counsel in in many federal and state appeals with his firm. He clerked on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals for Judge Carlos Bea, and in 2013 won the Barrister of the Year Award from the San Francisco Bar Association for his work in the appellate section, where he's the founder and longtime chair. And uh, least of all, he contributes regularly to the Daily Journal's column section, both uh, individually himself and his team contributes columns under the appellation Appellate Zealots. Mr. Foyer, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be here. We're talking now about Star Athletica versus Varsity Brands. And this case, at first glance, is a, is a battle between cheerleader uniform manufacturers or cheerleader um, uniform designers. And I think a little bit of that fact has been lampooned by the media as they've suggested that this seems like a sort of a silly issue for the United States Supreme Court to wade into. But I, I believe there's more at stake than just cheerleader costumes. What, what's so important about this case, Ben? So the Supreme Court doesn't really take cases that present only silly issues or issues that aren't going to have in all likelihood some 
further more significant effect. So the fact that this case does involve the designs of cheerleader uniforms shouldn't be taken to suggest that the legal rule the Supreme Court is going to create or derive or affirm is in any way limited to the cheerleader uniforms themselves. The issue presented in this case is how copyright law interacts with objects that include both a functional component and an artistic component. And this is a very old issue in copyright law. It has received very little Supreme Court attention, but it's a very important issue, especially, in fact, perhaps most of all, in the garment industry. Because clothing is essentially a useful product, a useful item. And the law is set up, the intellectual property law of the United States is set up to divide patents, which apply to things that are useful, and copyrights and trademarks, but here we're in a copyright situation, so copyrights, which apply to artistic and purely conceptual types of intellectual property. Copyrights don't apply to objects and things to the extent those objects and things are useful items and, and, are, and are utilized for a, a purpose. Now, there are advantages and disadvantages to patents and copyrights for objects and designs related to objects. Patents, particularly design patents, are relatively easy to get. They take a couple of years, but they're relatively easy to get. But they only protect a product from copying for 14 years. Copyrights protect a product from copying for currently 90 years. That number can be extended by Congress and has been many times. It's called the Mickey Mouse rule. Congress continues to extend the copyright deadline to include uh, Disney's copyright on Mickey Mouse, uh, which otherwise would fall out of copyright and into the public domain, meaning anyone can copy it. Garments are unusual because they're a hybrid of both a useful thing and, in some cases, an artistic thing. Think of a, a sweatshirt with a, a artistic design or a t-shirt with a very clever saying on it. So the division between the artistic part of clothing and the functional part of clothing is at the heart of this so you say there that clothing generally falls into the broad category of, kind of useful articles that uh, that cannot be copyrighted. But it's sort of interesting because with the exception of certain different kinds of clothing, maybe if you go back to the 19th century and we're all wearing homespun clothing simply for utility, many times you're buying clothes, dresses, suits for the particular cut or the particular color. Um, so it's interesting that the clothing itself generally is not a, a copyrightable sort of thing. Yeah, if you come up with a really clever or unusual way to put clothing together, then conceivably that way of putting it together might be patentable. But that's not what the copyright law is designed to protect. So if you have a, an incredible new fabric that you, you come up with or a, a brand new way of stitching fabric together that makes it lighter or stronger than anyone has ever come up with before, and it's a, a very clever or unusual way that you wouldn't kind of stumble onto it yourself, then maybe you could get a patent on that method 
or perhaps you could get a patent in some way on the final product, the way it, it looks when it's put together. But that would give you a monopoly over the way that product works. So conceivably, you could make a lot of money on it, but the monopoly would be limited. It would be limited in length to you know about a decade and a half. And that means that it wouldn't stifle innovation forever. Other people could use your design, perhaps lower the cost of that product after you've made enough money to recoup your investment coming up with that new way of manufacturing or new method of putting something together. But the visual design of it alone would be limited in your monopoly power to, to prevent anyone else from doing the same thing. If you had a copyright, that would protect your interest much, much longer and therefore would raise very different policy considerations. So that's why Congress early on in sort of the development of intellectual property law made this kind of division. And garment manufacturers asked Congress repeatedly to change the law, uh, but Congress hasn't, and Congress has, has, has left it alone. So the courts have interpreted the copyright law to divide between these two types of products. That is, useful articles are not subject to copyright protection, but artistic elements, in some cases, may be subject independently to copyright protection. And that's what the court is dealing with here. When can and should courts separate the artistic elements from the functional elements of a product and allow copyright protection over the artistic elements. Maybe we could quickly remind folks of the procedural posture here. So I, I believe there are, these are two cheerleader design companies, Varsity Brands and Star Athletica. And Varsity Brands, I believe, originally brought suit against Star Athletica for infringement, but lost at the district court. But then I think the Sixth Circuit overturned that ruling. So now it's Star Athletica that's the petitioner here at the Supreme Court. That's right. So Varsity Brands is probably the monopolist provider of cheerleader uniforms throughout the United States. The vast majority, if not every school, college, organization that buys cheerleader uniforms for its cheerleaders buys them from Varsity Brands. Varsity has, over the last sort of 20 or 30 years, gone to the copyright office and copyrighted hundreds of designs of lines and stripes and chevrons and colored patches that are printed or made part of cheerleader uniforms that cheerleaders wear in competition. They've copyrighted so many of these designs that it is very difficult for competitors to enter the marketplace because, at least according to the petitioner here, who is a competitor that tried to enter the marketplace for cheerleader uniforms. Varsity has taken the fundamental aspects of the design of what a cheerleader uniform is. That is to say, a cheerleader uniform is always and necessarily, according to the petitioner, Star Athletica, a dress or a, a pants and a, and a top for, for men with lines and chevrons and colored blocks laid out in certain patterns. And because Varsity has gone out and copyrighted almost every one of these sort of limited types of patterns you can have on the front of a shirt or a dress and have it still 
appear to be a cheerleader-style uniform. No one can sell cheerleader uniforms because the designs are all part of Varsity's copyright protection. And that's what happened. Just as you say, Star Athletica attempted to enter the marketplace. Varsity sued them for copyright infringement on the basis of the chevrons and lines and colored blocks that Star had on its uniforms. They lost in the district court. Varsity lost, Star Athletica won. And the district court essentially concluded that because the uniform would not have its utilitarian function as a cheerleader uniform without lines and stripes and chevrons, those aren't really a separate artistic part of the uniform that can be separated from the uniform itself. They are intrinsically part of what it is, almost in a metaphysical construct, to be a cheerleader uniform. And if that's the case, if it's not a cheerleader uniform without these types of lines and patterns, then the purpose really isn't to have some kind of art on a dress or pants outfit, but rather to sell or create cheerleader uniforms, the functional item itself. And in, in that view, the uniforms aren't, and the designs on the uniform aren't subject to copyright protection. Varsity uh, appealed, and the Sixth Circuit reversed. The Sixth Circuit looked at a totality of the circumstances, in a way, looked at a factors test that looked at a number of aspects of the design and the way that Star and Varsity attempted to participate in this marketplace, concluded that the cheerleader uniform designs are subject to copyright protection and found for Varsity. And that is the ruling that the Supreme Court has granted certiorari on. I'm not sure it's completely the legal salience of this argument that Varsity makes, but it seems at least conceptually interesting to me. And that's where they argue in their filings that, by and large, two-dimensional fabrics are often copyrightable. They're designs on two-dimensional fabrics, I think. Things like maybe drapes or tapestries. But then when you make a fabric three-dimensional and it becomes clothing, then it, then it loses protection. They think that that extra dimension shouldn't make a big difference, Varsity does. Um, is there anything to that argument? Well, it's not exactly right that the design would lose its protection simply because it's placed on clothing. That is to say, a sweatshirt can still be a sweatshirt separate from a painting or a drawing that happens to be on the front of the sweatshirt. That drawing itself may be copyrightable because it's an independent drawing or a piece of art. And the same thing with drapes. You can have drapes on your wall that are plain and white, or you can have drapes on your wall with a, ha a hand-painted or professionally done design that's deeply intricate. And the design may be copyrightable separate from the useful item. What the, at least the district court found here and what Star Athletica is arguing is that cheerleader uniforms are not cheerleader uniforms unless they have a certain kind of chevron line colored block design. And they have some precedential authority to support them. In fact, the only real circuit precedents that have come down on this question of how you divide up the functional aspects of a uniform or a piece of clothing from the artistic aspects have come down on Star Athletica's side. 
there was a case in the Second Circuit that involved prom dresses. And the question was, can the maker of a prom dress copyright the sequins and stars and glitter on the front of the prom dress and protect that particular use of those sequins? And the Second Circuit said no. The Second Circuit said, look, without this stars and sequins and glitter, it wouldn't be a prom dress. And there's no intent to create a piece of art separate from the prom dress through the use of stars and sequins and glitter. And there was a case in the Fifth Circuit involving casino uniforms, where the Fifth Circuit also said that the designs on the casino uniform were all part of the purpose, the underlying purpose of the casino uniform as being a uniform, a functional thing to be worn rather than an artistic image or artistic imagery on what might otherwise be a casino uniform even without it. Both of these circuit rulings were based on a decision from the U.S. Supreme Court from 1954 called Mazur against Stein. In that case, the Supreme Court held for the first time that a lamp, which itself would not be subject to copyright protection, could include design elements, in this case, dancing ballerina figurines in the base of the lamp that were subject to copyright protection, that there's a severability question to be asked. And that's the way that this case is coming up now to the Supreme Court again, with a petitioner raising the question of, okay, what should the precise test be for determining this severability when something functional also includes something artistic as opposed to something, the thing that's functional just including elements that conceivably you could write down or draw out on a piece of paper, but that really only have the purpose of making the functioning thing the functioning thing. So if the pursuit perhaps is to draw a line between utility and, and art, and if a cheerleader uniform is not a cheerleader uniform without these designs, then there is no line to be drawn. Like It's just complete utility. But obviously Varsity thinks there is a line to be drawn, and it's somewhere between, I guess, on one side is just the cut of the dress, and then on the other side of that line, and the creative portion is, is those, those chevrons and stripes and, and designs. Right. I mean, can a cheerleader or would a cheerleader wear a plain white dress for cheerleading? I don't watch cheerleading generally. <laughs> I don't I don't go to games and watch too closely. And, and I, I can't say that I watch competitive cheerleading on TV. But the few times that I can remember seeing cheerleaders, they generally didn't have plain uniforms. They were wearing uniforms with some kind of design on them. And the designs, as I vaguely recall, are generally pretty simple, involving lines and shapes or maybe a, a school or team logo or something. So, yes, that's basically what one of the questions is and has been in the case. And ultimately, that will be a question on remand. But the question here is, what standards should the court apply or have applied in order to decide whether there is an artistic aspect to the product separate from the utilitarian aspect of the product. And there have been a number of different decisions out of the circuits over 
the years, really from the 1970s and 80s onward, that the court hasn't resolved that aren't really traditional circuit splits in the sense that one circuit utterly rejects the view of the other circuit, but that are really more of slightly different variations of the same theme, the same basic question of how, how should we distinguish these two things. And that's one of the things that Star Athletica really pointed to in its petition for cert. Because that's something that the Supreme Court is always interested in, are the circuits agreeing or disagreeing about how the law is applied. But Star Athletica identified really a number of slightly different tests that on the margins could make a difference in terms of what's protected and what isn't. And when something is protected versus not, that really can make a difference because of the monopoly rights. So, for example... Because there, there's an argument made and to be made, and one that probably will be made in the amicus brief, at least, uh, perhaps in the merits brief, that because varsity has this effective monopoly over the cheerleader uniform market, this legal effective monopoly over the cheerleader uniform market, prices are increased over what they might otherwise be if there were competition. And those prices mean that a family with a child taking cheerleading practice may need to spend $300 or $200 on a cheerleading uniform instead of $100 or $50. And this analysis wouldn't just apply to cheerleading uniforms. These sort of reasoning could apply in lots of other situations. So the Supreme Court is going to be very sensitive and interested in those kinds of effects. And that's the reason that the test that courts use for determining this distinction has actual real-world importance. So some courts have looked to whether the utilitarian function is more important than the design function. Other courts have looked to whether the items can be separated and be held in distinct ways. That is, could I separate the cheerleading uniform and say, oh, that's a cheerleading form, and then the design portion and say, oh, that's art. Would I hang that on my wall? Uh, other courts, for example, the Fifth Circuit, looks to whether you could sell the items if they were separated. They, or not the items, but the aspects of the item if they were separated. So could you sell a plain white cheerleading uniform, and could you sell a design of the chevrons and lines laid out in the way that they are. Varsity obviously isn't trying to sell designs or art of these chevrons and lines. Varsity's only reason for copywriting these designs is to sell more of its cheerleading uniforms. So, so that question could make a difference in this case if that standard is applied. The Copyright Office itself has a slightly different approach that looks to whether you can analyze the two aspects of the product in an entirely separate way. So the tests overlap, and they are similar to one another, but they're not exactly the same and haven't been explained exactly the same way by the different courts. There are also some of academics have come up with different tests. Dissenters from various opinions have come up with other tests. So there are a number of possible tests kind of floating around out there for coming up with this this determination. 
And it seems like, as you suggest, that illustrates perhaps not a circuit split exactly, but just some variation, some subtle differences between these tests that are all searching to reach an answer to the same question. Um, I assume then that's why the court has taken this this case to sort of once and for all put forth one unifying test? Presumably that's something the court is going to be planning to do or is likely to do. And the Sixth Circuit here came up with a different test. The Sixth Circuit's looking at a sort of combination of factors and looking at how they all come together. Can they exist independently in a metaphysical way? Can they be identified separately, the artistic and utilitarian elements? So the Sixth Circuit came up with, a, with another type of test here. And I think the Supreme Court probably thought it was time to step in and maybe add a little bit of clarity to this area of law that really hasn't been updated at the Supreme Court level in 70 years. If I had to guess, it's probably not a great cert grant for varsity. It's never, obviously, uh, ideal to have a decision in your favor go up to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court reverses about 70% of the time at the uh, federal level. But the Sixth Circuit decision giving varsity this legal monopoly effectively on the cheerleading uniform business is going to strike some of the justices as potentially problematic, especially given that historically and for the most part, copyright law is set up in a way that does not protect functional designs uh, on clothing. It does seem like the theme of, of a potential monopoly is important. In reading the case, for the first time, it struck me that, well, why doesn't Star Athletica just think of their own designs? But as you say, these are relatively basic things, stripes and zigzags. So if, if you know, you're going to be able to copyright the most basic elements of design, then there's really not much left, as you say, so you could have a, a complete monopoly. That's probably right. Varsity has, at this point, registered hundreds of copyrights on basically just the way lines and zigzags and dots intersect on a page and ultimately on a uniform, but they got the registrations on a page. And there's only so many out there that, with these three shapes and colors you know, bright, usually primary colors or other really powerful direct colors, not too many nuanced shades that you can put on a uniform before they start to look alike. And if you're an upstart competitor and you have a established business that has effectively a legal monopoly, if you even come close to some of the copyright design, the threat of litigation could be enough to shut you down on its own. Uh, or at least keep you out of the business at all. And from an economics perspective, that's not ideal unless the determination from a policy point of view has been made that we should add more protection for folks who are coming up with these kinds of simple designs. There's no real policy reason to do that. The goal of most intellectual property law is ultimately to encourage future innovation by giving a, a certain exclusive right to market that innovation after you invent it. But the ways lines and zigzags intersect on a cheerleading uniform is somewhat different 
in terms of do we need to spur on this type of very utilitarian design as from a policy perspective than someone who paints intricate artistic patterns for blinds or on sweatshirts, for example. So the policy reasons aren't really there to support Varsity's position. At least it seems to me. Okay, then we've spoken a little bit about some of the, the varying ways this separability question could be could be analyzed. Say that you were tomorrow granted plenary judicial power and could design the, the test going forward. What would it look like? You know, I think that I would probably focus in some ways on combining the copyright office's test, which looks to whether the items can be separately realized. That is, can the functional element be realized? Is it a cheerleader uniform without this art? And is this art actually art without the cheerleading uniform? Or really is it just part of the design of the cheerleading uniform, which is primarily functional? And I would probably try to meld that if I could, if I had ultimate power, with part of the Fifth Circuit's test, which looks to marketability, both perhaps efforts at marketability. Does this business actually attempt or does is there an ex- exhibition of any interest in marketing this artistic design independently or conceivably could that be done if they wanted to? Would anybody buy this? And is it possible that it, it could be marketed? Could you even take this design, how would you market it? Would you paint it on a, on a piece of paper? How exactly would that work? Uh, and so I think combining those two concepts would probably do the best job at ensuring that you neither over-included nor under-included art, or at least the best of the Bright Line Test's ability, or a test like that's ability, that you over-included or under-included art in the copyright protection. Because it would look very hard at whether this is kind of independent art, and it would also allow for the possibility that it is independent art. We said at the top that this is a fight about cheerleading outfits, but it will impact other other folks as well. Who who are the major parties and what are the major sectors of society that are awaiting this result with, with some interest? Well, certainly the fashion industry is waiting this result. I mean, the Supreme Court could, could do anything. The Supreme Court could conceivably reverse its Mazur decision. The Supreme Court is not bound by existing precedent other than under the doctrine of stare decisis, which is persuasive more than anything else at the Supreme Court level. So the the fashion industry and the garment industry is certainly very interested in in what the court is going to do here. I think that's probably the biggest segment. Certainly any industry that has industrial design as part of its core element is going to partly be interested because one of the effects of the, the current existing copyright law is essentially that industrial design is not entitled to copyright protection. It, it, the, the cheerleader case isn't a really great example. That's industrial design, for example, isn't a great test because are chevrons or is the design of a uniform, is that industrial or not? We don't really think of it that way. Think of industrial design as being how is the lamp put together, for example. Sure. But industrial design is entitled to design patent protection. And that's what it's sort of intended to do, that it is a useful product that's put together in a certain way. But the way it's put together isn't primarily artistic or isn't independently artistic. It's 
maybe a really cool lamp, but you wouldn't be able conceptually or practically to separate the art part of it from the lamp part of it. And that's different from a lamp that may have a lamp on top and then art essentially separately on the bottom right. where you can look at it and you say, oh, wow, you've got your lamp up there and your art down there. That's not industrial design. We don't really think of that as industrial design, more maybe how those two components fit together. So the industrial design industry and anyone involved in the industrial design industry would probably be really interested in the way this decision comes out as well. Let's get to that, to the extent it's feasible to forecast. How, how would you see this decision coming down? Well, it's very difficult to say. I don't think the court would have taken the case if it felt comfortable with the Sixth Circuit's ruling and the state of this law in general. In terms of how it would will ultimately come out, when you have a number of tests that the court could adopt in order to clarify the law, it's very difficult to predict. It may depend on who is writing the opinion. Some justices are um, known for their more totality of the circumstances type approaches, like Justice Ginsburg. Other justices tend to prefer bright line approaches, uh, like Justice Alito, for example. So the decision itself is pretty hard to predict, other than to say, I think the Supreme Court probably isn't happy with what the Sixth Circuit did. Then maybe we could leave it there for now and we'll await this opinion. I, I do want to make a quick note to any cheerleader um, uniform designers out there. We're not trying to call you uh, hacks. We're just um, asking some tough questions about intellectual property. So keep uh, keep uh, working on those designs for sure. We'll leave it there for now and we'll await the oral arguments in this case coming up in the next few months in October term 2016. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Brian. One more time, that was Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a 10-lawyer boutique in San Francisco, discussing Star Athletica versus Varsity Brands. We'll move now to a state Supreme Court ruling, Property Reserve versus Superior Court, and hear from Mr. Rex Heinke. Okay, we're joined now by Mr. Rex Heinke, a partner with Aiken Gump and the, the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Mr. Heinke, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're talking today about the case captioned Property Reserve versus the Superior Court, San Joaquin County, with the Department of Water Resources, the real party and interest. And this is a case out of the California Supreme Court from last week, dealing with some very important issues, principal among them, the property rights of, of landowners and the, the limits that are imposed upon the government in terms of what sort of entry it can make upon private land to, to do testing in preparation of potential eminent domain actions. So could you tell me just a bit about who, who these parties are before we get, get into the case? Who, who these petitioners are um, under the name Property Reserve? I think there's another petitioner, Carolyn Nichols, at all. Uh, the petitioners were owners of uh, 150 parcels of private land that the government wanted to do tests on. The um, real party and interest was the Department of Re Water Resources, which wanted to do the testing. Gotcha. Then I believe this lawsuit sort of springs from a plan made by the governor to create large tunnels meant to, meant to convey water from the Sacramento River to different water suppliers throughout the state to help respond to low water levels and, and, and shortages around California. Could you tell me just a bit more about what that plan entailed? Well, 
the case is all about the government trying to determine the feasibility of either a new tunnel or a new canal in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, which would deliver fresh water from Northern California to Southern California. And so then part of that plan, testing the feasibility, that will involve some tests that the government and specifically the, the Department of Water Resources would intend to, to conduct on, uh, upon private right. land. Exactly. There, there were really two kinds of tests, what the court called environmental studies and what the court called geological testing. The environmental studies essentially consisted of doing maps and surveys of these parcels of land to determine what plants were there, what animals were there, what the soil was like, and so on. Um, that was largely to comply with things like the National Environmental uh, Practice Act, the CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, the Endangered Species Act, and so on. And then the other type was what the court called geological testing, and this was really drilling holes and boring holes to determine what the soil was like for purposes of determining whether you could put in a canal or a tunnel. Then it sounds like there's a sort of a range of burdens those tests would impose. Perhaps taking soil samples wouldn't disturb folks too terribly much, but drilling large or boring large holes into the ground could be a little bit more disruptive. I think there were some claims made that, that the test could harm, harm crops or, or harm wildlife. How, in your opinion, burdensome were some of these, these tests the government were hoping to conduct on private land? Well, the environmental studies didn't seem to be too burdensome. And the trial court uh, put a number of restrictions on conducting those uh, environmental studies. Uh, for example, the access couldn't be any from could be as little as 25 and as many as 66 days, but only during a year period. You could only do this on foot or on roads. You had to give 72 hours notice before each entry. Entries could only be between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And there were a bunch of other restrictions like how close you could get to structures and so on. So the court uh, limited those kinds of uh, studies quite a bit. The trial court denied uh, any geological testing, so it's not really clear what kind of restrictions it would have imposed on that, but presumably ones at least as detailed and extensive as those on environmental studies. I believe that the case centers around a particular statute. I think the government, uh, the agency here, believes that there's this uh, a statute, the, the pre-condemnation statute, that, that allows for these sorts of feasibility pre-eminent domain action tests, uh, allows government entry just to, to see if they, if they would like to try to move towards eminent domain. Could you tell me a bit more about what this, what this statute entails? Certainly. Um, and you, I think, accurately described it. The real issue in the case was first whether the, these activities, the geological testing and the environmental studies, whether either or both of them constituted takings under the federal or state constitution, and if they did, whether or not the procedure California had for allowing pre-condemnation testing was constitutional. What the court said was, well, we don't really need to decide whether these are takings. We're going to assume they are. It then looked at the California procedure and found that the California procedure was constitutional under the federal and the state constitutions. Now, that 
procedure, the pre-condemnation entry and testing statutes, essentially has um, the following elements. One, before any entry or testing, the government has to go to court and get an order authorizing the testing that's going to be done. Second, the court must determine uh, the probable compensation for the activities it authorizes, and the government must deposit that money. And third, the property owner can later obtain compensation for any actual damages for the use of their property or damage to their property. And what the court added to this, because that's what the statute said, the court added one other requirement, which was that a jury must decide the amount of damages unless the property owner waives a jury trial. Um, rather than just a, a judge uh, bench trial being conducted in, in the, those instances. Right. This is for the damages, but not for the deposit amount. Right. For that, the court could determine that. As you lay out the, the pre-condemnation statute, the, the preliminary entry um, statutory authority, it, it sounds like there's a you know a fair bit that the government has to do. They have to go to court and they have to put up whatever amount of money they think the, the property owner will be entitled to by whatever damage they cause. And then they will be on the hook for additional damages should the test cause, cause more harm than they anticipated. So I guess my question is, what, what was wrong with that statute in, in the eyes of the petitioners? What were they trying to get um, above and beyond that? But what they were seeking was what the court calls a classic condemnation proceeding. Those proceedings, as the court recognized, tend to be quite elaborate and quite lengthy. Um, they have a number of steps. First, you have to have an appraisal. Then you have to have a negotiation between the property owner and the government to see if they can agree on the amount that should be paid to the property owner. If that doesn't happen, then the government has to adopt a rule of necessity after notice and a public hearing. It then has to file a lawsuit. There's, of course, a discovery, largely exchanging valuation data. Then there's a bifurcated trial, first of the issue of whether the government has the right to take the property, and second part of the trial is what the compensation is. So that process is a very elaborate, uh, takes a long time, and uh, certainly could discourage the government often from even bothering with pre-condemnation testing. Right. I mean, because obviously these aren't formal eminent domain actions that the government's just trying to see. Right trying to enter temporarily just to, to test out the, the location. It does seem like it would be a lot to, to go through. Right, and that's just what the court said. Yeah. Basically, look, this is not a situation where the government is condemning the property and taking it away from the property owner. Uh, the government doesn't end up with an ownership interest or anything like that. The intrusion is pretty minimal, and under both the federal and state constitutions, the court found these statutes were adequate protection of the property owner's rights. Uh, under the federal constitution, what the court said was that the federal constitution does not require a particular method of eminent domain procedure, and it doesn't require that compensation be even be paid before engaging in the conduct that results in any kind of taking, so that the California procedure more than met that. And then the court went on to look at a provision in the state constitution, which says that the legislature can provide for possession by the condemnor following commencement of eminent domain proceedings upon a deposit in a court and release of that money to the property owner. So the court relied on that and said, well, 
this statute is even more than that. It not only provides for a deposit and prompt release of the money, it provides for the need for a court order before this happens. So it's constitutional. Uh, now, there's sort of a lot to this ruling and the ones below it, but I believe it'd be accurate to say that the two the two lower courts, the trial court and the intermediate appellate court, had made rulings that were a bit more favorable to, to the property owners. Yes, the, the trial court split the baby, as it were. The trial court upheld the environmental studies with the restrictions that I had already, I've already described, but it refused to allow the geological testing, the drilling of holes and boring of holes. The Court of Appeals split two to one, but it said that there could be no testing at all, neither the environmental studies nor the geological testing. The court reversed that and said both of these are permissible. Right. Okay, so now the, the agency will be able to, to, to conduct the testing that, that it had envisioned. I think some folks have, have viewed this ruling as, as quite pro-government. Uh, as you note, there, there was uh, one part of the ruling is that the, the sort of the third piece of that pre-condemnation statute, the, the subsequent damage trial, would be in front of a jury, which, which that uh, was something the petitioners had sought. In your eyes, um, what's the balance of this ruling? Is it, is it as pro-government as some have said? Well, I would say that it's a reasonable compromise between the competing interests of the property owners to not have the government interfere with their property without compensation. And on the other hand, the interest of the government in in conducting these pre-condemnation proceedings to figure out whether it even has any interest in condemning the property. Uh, I think it's a pretty practical, common sense decision in the end where the court recognized the government had to have some right to get in and do pre-condemnation testing, uh, boring of holes, and so on, as long as the property owner's interests were adequately protected. Sure. Maybe referencing practical considerations, this is a long opinion, I think something like 80 pages, and and nowhere did it really reference the fact that California has been in a years-long drought and that water shortages are plaguing wide swaths of the state. I know that's not exactly a legal consideration, but I'd be curious if, in, in your opinion, those sorts of Thoughts were were in the back of the minds of the justices in this unanimous 7-0 opinion that helps the government move forward on on this project meant to convey water to folks that are are struggling to get it now. Well, as you say, there's no indication in the the opinion that the court considered that. So to some extent, I'm speculating here, but I kind of doubt that that the drought was a major factor here because you're talking about a project that, assuming it goes forward, is many, many years in the future before it actually has any impact on how water is distributed in the state. So um, it doesn't seem to me like the court was probably spending much time worrying about this particular project. On the other hand, I think the court was uh, quite cognizant of the reality that the government needed some fairly expeditious way to get in and do this pre-condemnation testing if it was going to be able to uh, do public works. Public works, generally, I know that we're, we're referencing a particular project here, the potential tunnels the, the government hopes to build to convey water. But I, I think some critics of this ruling have said that this ruling will now allow other projects, perhaps, that would entail more intrusive testing to be approved more easily. Do you think that there's a potential slippery slope here? Well, of course, this is all a question of degree. And there's certainly got to be a point at which the intrusion by the government would be uh, so extensive that it wouldn't fall under a pre-condemnation 
proceedings and really would constitute a condemnation under the imminent domain laws. So it, it depends, I think, on what the government's doing. I think the other thing that's worth recognizing is, well, what the trial court did in terms of all the restrictions it placed on the environmental uh, studies is not something that the Supreme Court dealt with or approved or disapproved. But I suspect it will be looked to as a um, pattern that should be followed when the government seeks these kinds of orders, that one of the ways to mitigate and deal with a lot of the difficulty here is to place all sorts of restrictions on just what can be done rather than just saying to the government, sure, you can go on the property and do whatever you feel like. Is, is there some, some problem with the fact that the court didn't fully grapple with the question of whether this was a taking or not? They assumed it, they said, without deciding, in fact, that it was. Well, I don't think the court needed to decide that issue because it by virtue of the way they decided the case, that question of the taking just wasn't one that had to be resolved. And so I think they did what courts do and what I think they should do, which is you issue the narrowest decision you can to deal with the case in front of you and don't take on issues you don't have to decide. Okay, obviously some, I'm sure the petitioners here and and some uh, other constituents will will go complain to their their state assembly members that this pre-condemnation statute is um, is problematic. Do you, do you think the, the state legislature should, could potentially see this ruling and, and weigh in on its opinion of how the statute should be applied? Well, I don't think the court would agree that the procedures could be less protective of property owners. I think the court would find that, that not to um, be permissible. Uh, could the legislature decide that the procedures have to be more protective of property owners, I think certainly has that power. Um, There's going to be a lot of pushback from government agencies saying, look, you want us to build highways, you want us to build canals, you want us to build tunnels. How can we do that unless we can get access to private property and determine whether the property is suitable for these kinds of projects. So I'd be somewhat skeptical that the legislature is going to change the balance here between government interest and property owner interest. Okay, then is that sort of the the most important upshot here, uh, the court striking a a compromise between those two competing interests? I think that's exactly what the case was about. The court was confronted with the government's need to do this kind of testing if it's going to make determinations about public works projects and the interest of private property owners in not having the government trample all over a piece of property. And so the court tried to balance those interests by giving property owners both the right to immediate compensation, the right to later compensation, and requiring the government to go in and get a court order um, that can limit what the government does in terms of this pre-condemnation testing. What's so important about the the subsequent potential damages trial being in front of a jury rather than a judge? Why why was that an important issue? Well, I think it's believed that the juries are going to be more sympathetic to property owners than judges are going to be. Now, whether that's true or not, I suppose people could disagree about, but I think that's the belief and, and that therefore um, property owners should get that additional protection. I think the court also felt that it was really required by um, the Constitution, because in other condemnation proceedings uh, on damages, you're entitled to a jury trial. Then seems like an appropriate balance 
has been struck. I, I think petitioners have made some noise that they might potentially seek review in front of the, the United States Supreme Court. This seems like a bit of a localized issue. Do you think there's any chance this case could find its way onto the, the SCOTUS docket? Well, of course, anybody can seek cert in the U.S. Supreme Court, nothing other than paying the filing fee and having your lawyers prepare the cert petition and doing it in a timely fashion. So there's no barrier to their seeking cert. Um, I wouldn't think the chances of uh, obtaining cert are very great because there doesn't appear to be any conflict in the case law here between um, what the California Supreme Court said and what the U.S. Supreme Court has said or what other courts have said. Indeed, the court, California Supreme Court points to other jurisdictions which have also upheld pre-condemnation uh, testing statutes that were even less protective of property owners. So there does not appear to be a split here or any need for the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene to decide an important uh, and disputed question. Well, cert certainly a fascinating ruling and one I'm sure that will have broad implications going forward. Mr. Rex Heinke from Aiken Gump, thanks very much for chatting about it with us. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. that will conclude our program for July 29th, 2016. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Ben Foyer and Mr. Rex Heinke. I'd certainly like to also thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. And I have some folks to thank here on the production staff, including Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, Dominic Fricasa, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.